Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. This is the story, very simply, about Jesus returning to Capernaum, and word gets out that Jesus is back, Crowds gather, and four men bring a paralyzed man to Jesus. Now, you're familiar with the story. What I'm going to try to do today is take you back and let you relive that moment. And let's observe what happened in that story. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the People heard that he had come home. That is significant. Hold on to that. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Now, that indicates, if you've never noticed before, some men came, but only four carried him. So there must have been a little entourage here, right? You ever known that, or did you just think it was just four men? So there was a group that came. Four had been assigned to carry him. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, that's significant as well, he said to the paralyzed man's son, your sins are forgiven. Now, there's some things that happen after this as well that flow with the story. We'll not deal with them yet, but we will in the course of time. The first point I want to draw your attention to as really powerfully exemplified by this story is the drawing power of Christ. We often hear people speculating about what would it be like if Jesus lived in this day and age. Have you thought about that? I wonder how much technology he would use. Would Jesus have an iPad? Would he have a cell phone? Would Jesus have his own television ministry? Would he pastor a megachurch? Would he travel around the world with his own personal Lear jet and hold massive crusades in large arenas? How would Jesus dress? Because, right, frankly, I can't get the image of Jesus in his clothing, apparel of the time period, appearing in this age any other way. 
But you would have to think if he was in this age, he would probably dress somewhat like the culture he was in, wouldn't he? I doubt if he would be in the United States. He'd probably be in, you know, in the Middle East and dressing like, somewhat like them. But this is all speculation, right? We don't know what he would do, how he would be. Some of those things I asked facetiously that, that I vote with you. No, I don't think he would do any of those things. I really don't. I don't think he would out be out leading political rallies. I don't think he would be making the talk circuit and be on television programs being interviewed. I just I don't see Jesus as doing anything like that. But the interesting thing about it is that God in his infinite wisdom and his perfect plan chose to make the entrance of his son in that time period in that part of the world in that culture. Why? Why not earlier? Why not a thousand years later? But he put it at the center of something, didn't he? And we wonder if it isn't somewhat at the center of time as man knows it, rather than at the very beginning of time where we had no history of the failures of men, or at the very end of time or it was too late for people to know who this Jesus was and to evangelize the world. His timing was perfect. And in that culture that Jesus entered, he did not have the availability of any of the technology that I have suggested. So we really don't have any evidence, proof of what he would or would not have used in this day and age. The question's virtually meaningless. He came into a culture where things had remained relatively unchanged for hundreds of years, if not thousands. They were still living the same kind of primitive life that they had lived thousands of years before him. It, it was relatively un, unchanged. It was, it was a time when they were living in simple houses of wood and stone and mortar and flat roofs and crude beds and, oven f- and, and wood-fired ovens. They drew their water from community wells. They didn't have running water in their houses. It was an age of no refrigeration, no technology for canning foods. And public, open-air, community latrines that none of us in the United States would even know how to deal with something like that. And everything with wheels was either pushed or pulled by humans or beasts of burden. And most people walked everywhere they went, unless they were close enough to water to ride a boat. It was a very simple time that Jesus came into this this, this world. In that crude, unsophisticated culture, Jesus said, now I will send my son. He would not know the luxuries of air conditioning, forced air furnaces, traveling by bus, car, train, plane, making phone calls, or buying mass-produced clothing off the rack. And he would spend his entire life venturing no farther than a couple of days' journey from where he was born. 
just a very small circle, into that simple age, this Jewish peasant managed to create such an excitement and such a stir that he would impact the entire world for centuries to come without the aid of Madison Avenue and television and publications and promotions and slick, glossy posters. This seemingly obscure peasant from an obscure family, from an obscure town. Jesus of Nazareth. Born in Bethlehem, but Jesus of Nazareth. A town so obscure that historians have searched for a mention of the name Nazareth and have found very little or no reference to the town within 200 years of the account of Jesus being from Nazareth because it just wasn't an important town to mention to historians. It wasn't that it didn't exist. It just didn't matter. And in this, in this, in this remote, seemingly insignificant area and place and time, how did he burst forth to become the revered man, Savior, that we know him to be today. How did he produce out of that the largest religion in the world? It is absolutely mind-boggling that he was able to overcome all of those things that would have been contrary to what he was about to accomplish. But you know what? Nobody can credit it to anything else but the power of God. They can't say, well, yeah, but then in that day they had real good uh, uh, publicity. They can't attribute it to that. Well, but he was born of a royal family. He wasn't. And he overcame all of that become the center of a season we have today when we get into Christmas season. And I know some people struggle with the relationship of Christmas to uh, its roots, and, and that's all called genetic fallacy. It's trying to go back and find out where Christmas first came from and then bring some sort of impunity on what we're doing today. That doesn't bother me. All I'm interested in, it's a season where Jesus and his birth, his incarnation is magnified. And that's all that matters to me. And I don't care what people did 200 years ago with it. That matters not. This is a season where I can rejoice with other people in a common celebration that our Savior has come. And that's a good thing. No matter what else is associated with it, that is a good thing. If you all want to get together and change that to April, I'm with you. Whatever you want. But until that happens, let's just celebrate. This son of a carpenter, moving out from the wood shavings of his father's carpentry shop from this obscure village of Nazareth. He decides to start traveling. Within 36 months of him announcing his ministry, he did everything necessary to establish his movement. 36 months, that's all he had. I've wasted that time many times over and have accomplished nothing. But 36 months, he got it all organized. 
with this ragtag bunch of people that was following him, he managed to get it all organized and left it in the hands of people who for all practical purposes had proven themselves totally unreliable to carry this on. But by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, it's not just our abilities. By the power of the Holy Spirit, God accomplished what he attended So he chooses his followers. He announces his ministry. He chooses his followers. He gets five fishermen, one tax collector, and six others we know virtually nothing about. And he led this band of untrained, unrefined, insignificant characters around Palestine and just ministering to common folk. And he mesmerized people. He proclaimed the kingdom of God in two ways. And keep this in mind whenever you read your Bible. He proclaimed the kingdom of God as now and not yet. Those are both applicable when understanding the gospel proclamation. He proclaimed the kingdom of God is now here. But then you'll read again where he says, when it comes... So it's a twofold thing in proclaiming the kingdom. And those he was, he was speaking to, they may have been as puzzled by that, if not more, than we are. Because you tend to cling to one facet of that. The kingdom is now. If it's now, then why? But we read this. It is then. Yet for us, the kingdom of God is yet to come. Because since the, uh, even the time of Jesus, when he left, the kingdom of God is still developing. And it will not be consummated until he comes back and reigns here on earth. So the kingdom is here for us, yet it is not here yet. In both aspects, those are true. And he came to bring good news. And he preached to the poor. I mean, he has a mission outlined in the fourth chapter of Luke. He says, I'm going to bring good news to the poor. I'm going to come and declare captives will be released, the blind are going to see, the oppressed are going to be free, and then he began to implement his plan that people could see those things happening. Because he healed the sick, he raised the dead, he restored the sight to the blind, he set the possessed free from their bondage, and news spread like wildfire in this culture. So the Bible starts off in the second chapter of Mark. Mark starts off by saying, and Jesus, it, the news was spread about that Jesus had returned home. Capernaum. We've never associated Capernaum as being the home of Jesus. But Mark says it was. Born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, but when he announced his ministry, his home folk in Nazareth didn't appreciate it. As a matter of fact, they tried to drive him out of town and do some bad things to him. So he said, I'll move my ministry. A prophet's not without honor except in his own country. So he said, I can't do anything here in Nazareth. I'll go somewhere else. Every time he returned to Nazareth, he just caused a stir. The people couldn't understand this carpentry boy and what kind of an ego problem he has. He thinks he's God or something. So he says, I'll move my headquarters. It's evident from Scripture he headquartered in Capernaum. And he went out from Capernaum and he ministered in various locations. But when it was time to return to home base, he returned to... You got it. He returned to Capernaum. That was probably where Peter had a home. We know Peter was from 
Capernaum. And people were excited that he returned home. He walked through villages and people would press around him, making it almost impossible for him to make any progress, even walking. His disciples would walk with him and watch him just draw people magnetically. He would be forced to stop and people would reach out and touch him. He got touched all the time. I mean, for some people who don't like to be touched, you are in anxiety even thinking about this. The germs. But people wanted to touch him. Can you imagine living a life? None of us can even relate to that. Maybe stars, rock stars, movie stars, maybe they know a little bit what it's like to be thronged, to have to live uh, in, uh, in hiding, to have to go out in, in disguise with sunglasses and, and hats and things because if they're discovered, people throng them and people try to touch them. And sometimes the crowds get so crazy, they rip their clothes off of them just for a souvenir. That's crazy. But Jesus never hid himself. He never went out in disguise. He never put on hats and things to disguise. He was who he was and he went out and people thronged him and he took it. Because he realized these were needy people and they were reaching out to touch him. And when he touched them, things happened. Crippled people were healed. They walked again. Deaf people suddenly could hear again. Blind people no longer groped their way around. And Jesus never failed one single time to heal any person. Not once. There's not a testimony of one person, could not be a testimony of one person, who said, well, yeah, good for you guys, but I touched him and nothing happened. He healed them all. The Bible says he healed them all. Can you imagine the trail of excitement that he left as he walked in that primitive world? As he let the crowds gather around him, as he touched people, and in the town of Capernaum. This is where he didn't own property there, but, but he must have stayed at Peter's house. It was there on the, Capernaum is located on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. It was there in Capernaum where he called those fishermen to leave their boats and follow him. It was there in Capernaum that Matthew was sitting at the receipt of customs and Jesus came along and said, I don't want you to spend your life collecting taxes. I want you to give it up and follow me. That was Capernaum. It was in Capernaum where he healed the centurion's son, the nobleman's son. It was in Capernaum where he healed Peter's mother-in-law. It was in Capernaum where many scholars think he he healed Jairus' daughter. And then he and his disciples would travel to other, other villages, and time to time they would return to Capernaum. And so Mark says, Jesus came home. Now that meant something. People understood. What's it like when the popular man returns home? So Mark says, and Jesus came home. And then he builds this scene. 
as word gets around, he's back in town again. Everybody there had a neighbor or a relative, friend, who had been literally healed by Jesus. The town was full of living miracles of Jesus because that's what happens to a town who receives Jesus instead of rejects him. Nazareth didn't have that. Nazareth didn't have that. Capernaum was filled with testimonies of miracles. I can almost imagine them, if you'll let me just use a little creativity, I can imagine them gathering at the community well or the coffee shop, so to speak, and sharing their testimonies about what Christ did for them. The blind people sharing with the deaf people, sharing with the crippled people who walked there, sharing with those who were raised from the dead, sharing with those who had been healed of diseases, sharing with the healed lepers. They all had testimonies. And naturally, when Jesus came home, they were excited to see him. And they gathered. And he was in the house. And it's interesting that when they had gathered around this little house, Jesus was in the house, and as many as could cram into that tiny little quarters, crammed in there, the rest could not fit in the house. So they just gathered around the outside of the house, as many close to the door as they could possibly get so they could hear. But the Bible says while he was there, he began to teach them because he realized it was important to instruct, to disciple. He had things he wanted them to know, to understand, to learn. So he's teaching them. Can you almost see the crowd as people are encouraging, hush, quiet, quiet, quiet. We we can't hear what he's saying. Those inside can hear. Those at the door can hear a little bit. Those outside are there. What's he saying? What's he doing in there? He's teaching. Be quiet. Because never a man acted like this man. Never a man healed like this man. Never a man spoke like this man. Everything he did, everything he said was so compelling, so awe-inspiring. No wonder we understand now there in Capernaum at this little house why the activity in Capernaum has suddenly stopped and everybody has gone to the house where Jesus is. That is the drawing power of Christ. Unlike anything these people had ever witnessed, these people didn't have any heroes. The crowds may have gathered when a Roman governor or emperor or Jewish king paraded around, but none of them, none of those dignitaries generated the excitement of this Jesus from Nazareth. And none of those dignitaries walked among the people And none of those dignitaries wanted anybody touching their robes or touching their garments. None of them brushed shoulders with the poor and the needy. None of them would sit in a simple house and let the crowds gather together. But Jesus was touchable. 
He wasn't this regal figure high on this chariot. He didn't select his disciples to be his bodyguards. He welcomed people. He touched them. Children were drawn to him. They loved him. They come running to him, sticky fingers and all, and got up and ran their hands through his hair and his beard. And you know what children are like. And he loved them. And not only that, he said, I just wish that every one of you would become like little children. Let the little children come unto me and don't prohibit them. The outcasts for Jesus were never cast out. He drew them in. The people who had no friends found a friend in Jesus. The people with no social status were made to feel important with Jesus. He didn't seek out the important people in town and say, I want to have lunch with the dignitaries. He went down and found the friendless, the hopeless, the poor. And he said, I just want to hang out with you people. Will that be okay? And they swarmed. Now Mark moves quickly as the crowd has built around this house. And in the midst of all this hustle and bustle, there's somewhere in Capernaum, a paralyzed man. And he has heard the news that Jesus is home. And this paralyzed man, we have to fill in the blank, has expressed to somebody, I would love to go see Jesus. So they got a committee together. They got some friends together. And out of this little group who cared about the paralyzed man, They elected four of them, let's just carry him, and the rest of us will just go, and we'll take him to Jesus. It's a great idea. However, when they get there, they find out that there's going to be little chance that their friend, the paralyzed man, is going to get to see Jesus or even hear Jesus because the early comers have already taken up all the space. Let this speak to you, Christian people. Are you the one that wants to be the first one in line? Or are you willing to see that the needy and the oppressed are accommodated before you're accommodated? You know, Christmas, uh, not Christmas, church luncheons, church banquets tend to bring out the worst in people. I see people gripping their plate and waiting like they're on the starting line. My wife and I made it a policy a long time ago. We eat last. Somebody deserves to go before us. And if there's nothing left, and there's been nothing left many times, it's so what? As long as everybody else got something. Let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus. A spirit of humility. Not me first, but somebody less fortunate to be first. It'll change your life. Be a servant instead of a self-server. Now here's all these people. They have left the needy behind. They've left the paralyzed man. They went to get a good seat. 
a good position. Yet there's some who cared. Now, you look at this story, and who are you? Are you the crowd that ran to get the best position, to get the inside seat with Jesus? Or are you the paralyzed man that needs some help and wonders, where's my Christian friends when I need them? Or are you a part of that little group and the four who were sensitive to somebody else and said, it doesn't matter if I get there late or not. I want to help somebody else less blessed than me and took their time and went out of their way to help somebody else get there and we'll just all get there when we get there and we'll deal with it later on. Who do you see yourself as? I know every one of us see ourselves as one of the four. I hope we are. I hope we have a heart of ministry like that because the four represent a ministry that I think God really values. And the four show up. The story moves quickly. It's just a few verses. But it didn't all happen as quickly as Mark just jotted it down. And they arrive carrying this paralyzed man on some sort of a mat or a stretcher. And they quickly find that there's not much chance of moving through this thick crowd and getting inside the house. That's out. Now, what I love about these four people is, can we use a 21st century term? They like to think outside the box. These, these people were thinking outside the box before that was popular. And they show up, and they can't get through to the door, and they can't get inside the house, and they say, well, now what are we going to do? And this one guy, who just is willing to think outside the box, he said, how about let's go up on the roof? Now, picture in your mind what it takes to get dead weight up on a roof. The roof was flat, and somehow they had to, to, to scale the outside of the house, build a human ladder, whatever they did, to get a couple of, a few men up there, and then the rest of them down there are handing this paralyzed man up on the roof, and the people standing around are curious at the very least. What are they doing? And they get him up on the roof because those houses generally had a little port, a little access, that in the evening you could climb up through this little door and stand on your roof, and there would be a cool breeze up there. So they knew, well, let's get on the roof. There will be a little access hole there. But they get up there and the hole's too little. So you got a thing outside the box again. What do we do now? And somebody else comes up with a brilliant idea. We'll enlarge the hole. This is not their house. So they begin tugging on things and prying it loose and bit by bit and tile by tile and piece of wood by piece of wood somehow with their bare hands, without tools, without crowbars, without any hammers, they just begin to manually by hand rip this hole open. You got to know this is going to interrupt the Bible study inside. Plaster and mud and straw and bits of wood are falling on their head. 
So they have brought a complete halt to whatever's happening inside. And they look up, and somebody's ripping the roof off this place. And then when they get it large enough, somehow they lower this man down right on the front row in front of Jesus. Best seat in the house. Mission accomplished. I can just imagine the man on the... How do you explain yourself? The man on the mat. I was just in the neighborhood, thought I'd drop in. (laughs) And here's Jesus, and here's the paralyzed man. And the very first thing that... The very first thing that Jesus says, because he's never caught by surprise by anything, they lower him down, and this man is here, and the very first thing he says is, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> it must have been the sin of tearing up the roof. I don't know. <laughs> it's okay. The very first thing, he's like there, he says, your sins are forgiven. Now, Jesus is methodical. He knows what he's doing. And the first thing we would have expected Jesus to say is, why, a paralyzed man, let me heal him too, get up and walk. But he didn't do that because he knew he happened to have some scribes sitting in his little home congregation there, and he wanted to needle them a little bit. So the first thing he said was, your sins are forgiven, and now the hackles have raised on the scribes. And immediately, the very first thing he said is, did you hear what he said? Did he say what I think he said? Did he say, your sins be forgiven you? Who does he think he is, God? Nobody can forgive sins but God. These are scribes. Scribes were teachers. If anybody understood the doctrine of forgiveness of sins in the Judaic system, it was teachers. And so here's the teachers, and Jesus said, Thy sins be forgiven thee. And with one short phrase, he has wiped away all of the thousands of years of Judaism. Just swept it away. All the sacrifices, all the priests, the holy place, every he just swept it away and simply says, Your sins be forgiven. And they said, You can't do it that way. It's much more complicated. We have to have a priest. We have to have an animal for sacrifice. We have to have shed blood. We have to have this blood applied. It doesn't work that way. We're teachers. We know what we're talking about. So now he's got their attention. And he poses this question to them. And he says, well, which is easier to say? Your sins be forgiven or rise up and walk And they couldn't answer because they could not say either one of them. And they were stymied. And Jesus said, I said that for one purpose, that you might know that the Son of God has power on earth. To forgive sins. Oh, let that settle in your spirit today. The Son of God has power to forgive sins. What have you done? Where have you been? What mistakes have you made? What haunts you in your life? 
I want you to know that probably the best news of this whole story is when Jesus said, it's not going to take the blood of bulls and blood of goats and the blood of sacrificial lambs. It only takes the Lamb of God. And if I say your sins be forgiven, your sins are... I have the authority! I have the authority! I can say your sins are forgiven and the devil can't convince you otherwise. And then when he settled the matter, he said to the man now, Take up your bed and walk. And the man gets up with sins forgiven and body healed and takes up his mat and he walks on. When Jesus saw their faith, he saw the faith of the paralytic, he saw the faith of the four, he saw the faith of those people. When Jesus saw their faith, when Jesus saw their faith, you know what? You have to have faith people can see. Just telling them your verbal faith is not near as effective as them have you having faith they can see. You can talk about the Bible and God and church all you want, but they're watching how you react in life to various circumstances. They're watching how you conduct yourself when the doctor has given you a bad report. They're watching how you react whenever you get bad news about your family or your friends. They're watching how you react when you've been mistreated by the co-workers. They're watching you. When Jesus saw their faith, because their faith was more than just believing that Jesus was the Son of God who he proclaimed to be, their faith was in getting a paralytic man saying, if we could just get him to Jesus, this man can help him. And they put their faith into action, and they tore the roof up, they let the man down, and Jesus said, I see your faith. This is marvelous. You do something with what you believe in. Let your faith be visible, because you take action on what you believe in. Let people see your faith. And so Jesus declares his authority. And anybody who's got authority over sins also has authority over your sickness. And anybody who's got authority over your sickness also has authority over your sins. I can promise you that that was not exactly what the paralyzed man was expecting when he was taken there. But it's what he needed. It was the first thing he needed. And the Bible says, and they were all amazed, and they glorified God, saying, we never saw Anything like this. That summarizes Jesus. You never heard any man speak like him. You never saw anybody do anything like him. He's remarkable. He's magnificent. He is supreme. He is unrivaled. He's amazing. He's awesome. He's so far above all that we can imagine. And they all were amazed and they glorify God. But here's the thing about it. Because I somehow have to make my sermon match my title. Whatever it takes to get to Jesus, 
I wonder if the inconveniences of life keep people away from Christ. I wonder if our preoccupation with this world and our busyness with our schedules to keep up people from committing themselves to Jesus because they think this commitment to Christ is going to be such an infringement on all of their plans and all of their hopes and all of their dreams. They just can't do that. I wonder if those things that make people hesitate to sell out to Jesus and make him Lord and Savior of their life, if those aren't the crowd that throng the house, if those aren't the porthole that's too small in the roof, if those aren't all the obstacles that stand in their way, that the four represent those who realize nothing will stand in my way of coming to Jesus. And I do not understand anybody who hears the story of Jesus Christ, the message of Jesus Christ, who still cannot find their way and their strength and their motive to get to him. I don't understand that. The people at Capernaum got it. Whatever it takes, drop what you're doing, go where Jesus is, get to him. The paralyzed man and his friends, they got it. Whatever it takes, whatever the obstacles, overcome it, get to Jesus. But that really is a powerful message in this story. Is Are you really ready to make the breakthrough to Jesus, regardless of the obstacles? Well, I'm not, I'm too young. to. That's an obstacle. It's time to come to Jesus. Well, I don't have any friends or family that walk that way. That's an obstacle. Push through it. Break through that roof. Get down to Jesus. Well, I've tried too many times before to get healed, and I don't know if I can. That's an obstacle. Break through it and get to Jesus. The fact of the matter is we've all done something wrong. We've all failed. And we are not equipped to carry the guilt of our failures under our own strength. That burden is going to ruin us. Every one of you here today, you can think of the most embarrassing times spiritually in your life when you've done things that if you could do it all over again, you promise yourself, I would not do that again for all the world. I just wish I could reverse time. I wish I could do it over again. You can't. And the guilt of that will destroy you. The burden of that will weigh you down. You cannot deal with it. We try to run from it. We try to hide it. We try to overcompensate for it. It affects our behavior. We become withdrawn in shame. We go off the deep end and try to drown out the voice of condemnation. Sometimes we drink it away. Sometimes we shoot it away with drugs. Sometimes we hurt others because they have hurt us so much. And, but we just cannot deal with the guilt. But the good news is, if you'll break through to Jesus, the Son of God has power on earth to forgive sins. I just wonder if you're willing to make the breakthrough. Would you bow your heads?